Of that 100, there's probably 1%. So we, we probably have 300 potential experts that could be calling me and saying we want to participate, but we've got nothing. Why is that? Well, they may be saying we don't want to give Sean any encouragement, and when we go on there, then it's going to spread his ministry around, and we don't like his ministry, so we're not going to participate. Or they can say, well, we don't really think ours is the best. It's just another way. And if that's it, you're pathetic. You know, you're absolutely pathetic to be representing something but saying it's not the best. Or you could be saying, we really don't want people to look under our skirt and see that there's nothing there. (laughs) Bad analogy, but we don't want them to look under our skirt because we don't want to be exposed. We don't want people to, we don't want people to see that the king's really uh, naked. We just want to still hang out behind that curtain and give all the orders and act like ours is best. Now, I don't know which reason it is, but all of them are pretty pathetic. And so I would be thinking that in this valley or in this state, we would have at least several dozen pastors saying, yeah, darn it, I want to step up and do it, but we're not getting it. So we need your help. Go to your pastor. You guys know you live in this area, some of you. Ask them to participate. If you're from out of state, maybe those pastors can make a visit next year, early quarter of 2019, and come join us for a Friday and Saturday. We can work on getting some housing and and, and stuff like that. But come join us and let's do this because I think it would be really interesting. This isn't a debate. It's just you saying why what you have spent your life teaching is the best. Okay? Now, before we get into the show tonight, I want to promote a great ministry called Talking to Mormons. Can you tell me about the Mormon concept of salvation? Bruce R. McConkie said in his book, Mormon Doctrine, unconditional or general salvation, that which comes by grace alone without obedience to gospel law, consists in the mere fact of being resurrected. Then a couple pages later says, immortality is a free gift and comes without works or righteousness of any sort. All men will come forth in the resurrection because of the atoning sacrifice of Christ. In this sense, the mere fact of resurrection is called salvation by grace alone. I wonder if fish will be resurrected. So, unconditional salvation by grace comes through the resurrection for all mankind. But you're also taught that conditional salvation comes through personal works of righteousness. That's right. Our third article of faith declares... We believe that through the atonement of Christ, all mankind may be saved by obedience to the law and ordinances of the gospel. Meaning the laws and ordinances of Mormonism. We believe in doing all one can do and then believing that the grace of God will make up for what we lack. I'm familiar with the passage in the Book of Mormon, 2 Nephi 25-23, that declares, It is by grace that we are saved after all that we can do. This Book of Mormon teaching creates a sense of pride in a Mormon for doing their part to make themselves worthy, doesn't it? We try to avoid being prideful, but our efforts to keep commandments is what helps us earn God's grace. However, the abundance of clear biblical scripture leaves no room for us to think our own works could save us in any degree. The gospel is the good news that Christ purchased our salvation for us. He redeemed us in full. All that is left for us to do is believe in Him and receive His free gift. His works will be manifested in our lives. Praise God! 
Don't forget to tap that subscribe button and hit the bell icon to be notified of our upcoming episodes. Did you know we have a website? Go to TalkingToMormons.com where you can view and read all our articles. And follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Check out the description below to learn more. Just in case that one elder happens to come in tonight, I am getting myself gussied. <laughs> the disparity between that elder and that fish. I mean, we've got some serious gender issues going on. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I love talking to Mormons, and I think they do a fantastic job. And uh, really a great job with all the dialogue and all the animation and all the hard work that goes into it. There's humor in everything. I mean, obviously, look at the show. But uh, really love that thing. Check it out. Tell your friends. Uh, I think people are really interested in that animated approach. So, you know, when uh, Christians are asked historically, what do you do with the aborigine? You know, that was the thing. That, I don't know why it's the poor aborigine. Aborigine's like, hey, we got God over here. But tonight's quite the show. I think Patricio put something in the punch. In any case, um, the idea of what happens to the aborigine is talked about, and the standard answers Christian give, Christians give are, is, well, uh, they burn in hell forever. If they never hear of Jesus, and they want the aborigine to say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, if they don't, they burn in hell forever. And that has been the popular view for several hundred years. I don't know what was before what they talked about with the aborigine, but for the past several hundred years since the burned over district and a little bit before that, you know, it was they burn in hell forever. Well, that hasn't really worked, right? I mean, people just don't buy that anymore. So the other thing that they might say is, well, if they really are seeking, God will provide missionaries to get to them and teach them the truth. And so we're talking about the year 1225, Aboriginal Australia, and somehow the missionaries get to the guy. Now, that's a little bit of magical thinking. I'm not saying God can't do it. But we have to admit as Christians, there are many people who have sought for the truth and have died without it. We have to admit that. So let's just put the game playing aside for the, 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 the dancing we do with apologetics. And let's just admit, since Jesus ascended, and since Jerusalem has fallen, there have been people on this earth who have taken a breath who have not heard the name Jesus. That's the question, okay? Now, the final one is, well, if they just kind of believe with their heart, according to what they know, then they're going to be fine. Okay? So that one's, that one's better. We've gotten better with the answer, and the answer has changed. So... I think that we need to talk a little bit about this with more than just the aborigine. And this is where it's really getting down to it. Because what I'm trying to talk about tonight is we have drawn a line in the stand of dogma as Christians that really isn't supported by the Bible. It's supported by the interpretation of the Bible. But that line we've drawn has been fugly. That means a freaking ugly view. And we've drawn it and we stand by it. 
dogmatically, but it really doesn't hold water when we consider all the things that are uh, at work here. So I want to go to the board really quickly. Let me find my notes here. And let's just talk about these things for a second. All around the world, however many billion people, right now I think there's four billion people on the planet. And every one of them have different experiences and input from these areas. And I covered this on Christianarchy, but I want to talk about it a little bit more. So we all come from some sort of family setting, right? We have a mom or a dad or both, or we are adopted out or our family setting, uh, we, uh, there's a tenor in the home that we're raised in. We're born into love and nurture. We're born into chaos, into fighting. And more and more we see from psychologists and psychiatrists and from actual studies that the first experiences we have, even, even uh, in utero, can really play a role in the way a person is. So we all have such various family backgrounds that are contributing to the way we see, think, believe, respond. That's just the family, okay? We go to genetics. Now we're talking about mom and dad and their parents and their parents and the genetic factors that are at play in you, the offspring of mom and dad. And we're talking about our emotional and our intellectual and our, um, and our uh, spiritual even and our psychological makeup, our physical makeup. We're talking about people who are born uh, 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 thin and strong and lean. We're talking about people who are born with a weight problem. We're talking about all sorts of genetic factors, all types of levels of being able to understand things. There are people who cannot read no matter how hard they try or they don't read well or they don't ever want to read. And we have people who are really, really, really smart. These genetic factors are huge in the makeup of the human being, right? Then we come to, so we've got the family, we've got the genetics, then we come to the religious input. You take little Johnny, who has the DNA of a freakazoid. He's raised in a family that's insane and chaotic, and you take him to church, and the parents usually uh, bring children to the church that they believe in, typically. If there's a religion at all, that's another factor. And there's positive experiences in religion, and there's negative experiences in religion. And you, you could take Junior to a church, where the pastor is loving and kind and helps nurture Junior in a good way. You can take a Junior to a church where the pastor molests him on Fridays. And what's Junior supposed to think about God when the pastor's been molesting him since he was seven, right? So we have dogma and practice and, and doctrine. And we have when that came into the person depending on their age coalescing with their genetics and moving in with their family dynamics. This stuff is getting really complex quickly. Forget the aborigine. Let's just look at any single human being. Any single, right? 
We have people who their church gives them guilt, fear, shame, encouragement, illumination. The impact is enormous on how people see God. So where we are on our ivory towers from the pulpit and we're saying anyone who doesn't accept Jesus in this life is burning in hell forever and ever. But he'll slap your head and praise the God and Jesus. If we're doing that, we're ignoring the fact that some little Johnny was being molested when he was seven till he was 18 in the pastor's office, that he comes from a messed up genetics and he hates God. He can't stand God. So the dogma from the pulpit, from the Christian side, myopic, 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 is they're burning in hell. And that's just so comforting to be able to stand on such dogma, erasing all these factors and just saying everyone has a darn choice, right? Socioeconomics. They're fed or they're not fed. They have nice clothes or they don't have clothes at all. They, uh, they have disappointments. They have fulfillments. They're spoiled. They've been spoiled by their parents, or they have lived in abject poverty. Uh, cultural expectations. Childhood through the teen years, socioeconomics play a huge role in the development of people. And they say like Babe Ruth, that's the reason he was so obese is because he grew up in orphanages and they would always hold food from him. And so when he became rich and powerful, he overate himself completely and he could never get enough. That's environment and, and genetics play, all at play, right? Early experiences, or have they been fulfilling? Have they been loving? Have they been building? Have they been filled with trauma and pain, humiliation? Have people died in their life that has affected how they think about God and the fairness and the love, lovingness of God? Their challenges and their tests in early life. Then we move to their friends. And have they been a positive or negative influence on them? Do they realize they can trust people? Or do they find that friends always stab them in the back? And therefore, they don't believe there's any friends. And they go to church uh, later on in life. And they find out the same thing happens there. They revert back and they never touch church again. And then we get to environment. So many people have been raised in war-torn countries. Or peace. Health or polluted. I mean, if you go to uh, India, you find some really polluted places, third world countries, where children and teens are playing near uh, untreated sewage. And, and then, of course, do you feel threatened or secure? Did they serve in the military or not? And what did that do to them or for them? And, and then did they go to a war? And then what war? And what happened in that war? And what did they do in that war? All factors. All factors. Let's go to their education. Did they have a formal education? Was it grade school, junior high, high school, secondary school, college, universities? Are they, do they have advanced degrees? All of that stuff, again, playing into the makeup of the human being. And finally, we get to the culture of the community. White collar, blue collar, agrarian. Did they work out in the fields? The political temperament. What, what kind of family and what kind of political environment was all around them? So... The point of all this is we talk about the aborigine. <laughs> what about the aborigine? What about the dude next door? I mean, what about the person who has such a collection of defective experiences or maybe even beneficial experiences 
that keep him or her distant from the good news or the need for the good news. Maybe they have their whole life laid out for them. It's been beneficial and it's been, uh, they've been provided for and they really don't see a need for God. It can work the opposite way too, right? So what do we do with all of that? When you go to a religion, Mormonism, Catholicism, Baptist, Presbyterian, you name it, they all are kind of doing three things. They all tell you how you should live and how you should believe. And then they also tell you what you must do to be saved and uh, forgiven, how to escape hell, what people need to do to make God happy with them or to love them. Uh, and so that, some of this is sometimes there. And then what kind of Christians they must be in innumerable ways in order to live with God after this life. We take that formula that each religion's giving and we stamp it over all of those factors. And anyone who doesn't accept what that religion is giving and says, you're not going to put that on me, they are verboten. They are hated by God. They are going to hell. They're bad. They're wrong, right? That's what religions do. Most of the stuff is aimed on how you live your life, how you think and they give you the theology to go by it. Most of it takes what uh, I have, uh, it's conform to everything we say in light of all those things that you are as a human being, and you will be okay. Disagree with what we say, and remember, there are hundreds of different versions of what everyone says, and disagree with our version, and you, God doesn't love you or you are rebellious, or you're going to hell, or you're never going to heaven. Now here in America, this is, this is diverse enough, but now add in all the countries in the world. Just add in people who were, I can use Sweden for example, very different religious culture there, very different genetic culture. Their way of seeing life and doing things, I know from experience because we have a Swede in our family, and my grandsons genetically are like Swedes. And they have a certain way that's very different. So let's just bring in all the other countries in the world and take this idea that we or the, the churches have an answer and they can stamp that on you and you're going to be okay with God. But all the rest of them are inferior. You got to take their proprietary product. I've spent no small amount of time researching God and seeking him and... and changing my ways as, as things have proven faulty. And I had a young man, I sat down with him at Einstein's two or three months ago, and I was sitting there with Christopher, the Catholic priest of Cathedral of the Madeline, and he flat out told me, if you don't receive the Catholic baptism, you're going to hell forever. That's almost a quote. Luckily, uh, Father Christopher, who's a little more sagey, just kind of winced his eyes and smiled at me. But what that young priest was telling me is really the, the status quo of what all the religions are telling everybody, right? So fortunately, some of us uh, have seen the light and most of us are clinging to the dogma. Um, we know of some former LDS people in this area who have embraced orthodoxy. That could be Russian, that could be Greek. And 
They zealously think and proclaim online now that they possess all the right answers to everything about God, and uh, all those answers fix everything, all those diversities that are on the board. Um, their demand is not unlike my Catholic uh, friend. Uh, icons and rituals and Mother Mary and stories of authority, etc., etc. We have Mormons, of course, going door to door. What do they say? They're really sneaky about it. All religions are good. Everyone's acceptable. Everything is free, and we're all going to end up in heaven card. That is a game they play right off the bat. You know, come, we're all welcome. We don't even have a hell in our doctrine. It's all going to be a heavenly place, right? But at the end of the day, it is really actually a limited access to God for most people in Mormonism. And in the end, most people, unless they hold the priesthood honorably, attend the temple regularly to learn the endowments, uh, pay their tithes, endure to the end with everything Mormonism tells them, they will not be with God. The same threat. And it doesn't matter about these things. It's conformed to our way. So, our Calvinist friends, you know that, present one dogma. Our Arminius friends present another all to try to own each other, control each other. If you haven't noticed, all of this is the result of men and women ignoring something. They're ignoring something that's in the Bible. And it's really an important point that if you get it, you will be able to transcend beyond all this bull stuff. Okay? And what it is, is that God has taken care of all of that through his son. Every bit of it. Every bit of it. If you are a dwarf, Hindu, alcoholic, homosexual, God has taken care of that through his son. If you are an upstanding Catholic priest who doesn't molest boys, God has taken care of that through his son. If you're a Mormon, God has taken care of it through his son. This is not universalism. Universalism said all paths read. No, no, no. This is one path. Straight is the gate, narrow is the way. Few be there that find it. But God has, through that way, taken care of it through his son. We speak of it as if there are things he hasn't taken care of. That Jesus isn't the author and finisher of the faith. Jesus is the guy who sort of got things rolling and now everybody needs to fall into their uh, category in order to overcome all that and have it stamped over all that. And then God may, you know, take care of it. And if God has taken care of it and you've been saved, then you've got to continue forward to get everything going so that God will love you. And that's according to the plan the church gives you. But we step away from the biblical concept that God has done it completely through his son. So I want to read some passages to you tonight, and I just want you to think about them. These are from the Word of God. In Isaiah 25, 6 through 8, it says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. 
he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth for the Lord has spoken. I believe that. He's done it, taken care of, period, over. Shut the front door. He's done it. I don't care what those things are. He doesn't care what those things are. And his son has done it for us. That is fantastic, great news. Let me give you a, a couple more. 1 Timothy 4.10, For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. He's the Savior of all people. Yeah, especially those who believe. Now that, especially those who believe caveat, that's a whole nother discussion. That's talking about being his sons and daughters and living in his uh, new Jerusalem on high, but he's the Savior of all. He brings them all to the heavenly realm. I mean, this is what it's saying. Not just some, not a limited few, all. Romans eleven thirty two. Paul says, For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. He's consigned us all to being rebellious. That was through Adam. And now God has shown what? More merciful, more loving, more amazing, more everything through Christ, because now he's merciful to all. These archaic notions of hell still being in existence, hell used to be there, definitely for people who were under the law. There was a separation between God and the children of Israel until Jesus came along and bridged that gulf through his life and his death and his resurrection. But nevertheless, now we live in that new age. And God has done this for all in the past. We're not still doing it. Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. You could read that two different ways. Romans 5.18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. All means all. All men. That's what it means. I'm not making this up. This isn't Macranianism, as you idiots call, call it. This is straight out of your Bible. The Bible I love. It's teaching it right there. How can we, how can we look over these things? How can we say the Aborigine is going to burn in hell? And the Mormon is going to burn in hell? And the Catholic is going to burn in hell? And anyone who doesn't agree with our special little product is going to... It's like God has created a, a, a feast that's covering a thousand football fields with every food on earth. And the churches are standing up with a box of cereal that says, our church and saying, you can only eat this. We have limited God and his victory through his son so entirely. The good news isn't great. It's not even good. It's kind of bad. It's freaking bad. Terrible that you can go to a funeral where one of your parents has died and those parents, they weren't really outspoken believers, but they loved you and they lived a sacrificial life for you. And some Christian would say, I don't care. They're in hell forever. There's something wrong with that. Do you get it? Because, and the, the biggest thing that's wrong with it is it goes against what 
The scripture says. Second Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That word is not wishing that any should perish means it's not going to happen. None will perish. That's what that means in the Greek. It's not, he's kind of hoping, it's this will be my will. None will perish. That's a God I believe in. That's a God that is good news to share with others. That's a God where you can say, you don't want to believe? Oh, that's your choice. There's, there's blessings for believing and there's, there's relationship for believing and there's, you know, having, having something that God has promised those who believe. You don't want to believe? You don't have to believe. I love you the same. You're my brother. I'm your brother and I don't believe. Yeah, you're my brother. You know, God will take care of everything. That is great news. And it gets rid of all that other stuff that's so ugly. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. I believe that when it says later that death is swallowed up in victory, I believe that Christ shall make all alive physically through the resurrection and spiritually. That spiritual death is dead. He's had the victory. That, I think, can be proven. Something else to think. John 12, 32. Jesus said, And I, when I am lifted up, when I am lifted up, not future, from the earth will draw all people to myself. That's what he says. I believe it. Do you? Or he doesn't have that ability. Yeah, maybe not in this life, but he will do it. John 12, 47, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the cosmos. That's great news. Luke 3, 6, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. What more do you want? Philippians 2, 10. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. At the name of Jesus. Oh, that, he's going to force those to bow. They're going to hear the name Jesus and they're going to be like Satan in the Mormon temple film. I'll bow, but I don't want to. Now, at the glory of Jesus and what he's done, the knees will bow. They're going to bow out of awe and reverence and love and appreciation. And if they don't, God, who is long-suffering and patient and kind, will draw them to him in the end. That's great news. Romans 14, 11, For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. John 3, 16, you know this one, For God so loved the cosmos, not the Gehei, not the Oikomenia, not the local area, not the local Israel. God so loved the cosmos that he gave his only son that whosoever believes on him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the cosmos to condemn the world, but in order that the world cosmos might be saved through him. Good news. Great news. When are we going to start preaching it? When will we start preaching it in love and giving people the opportunity to have something that makes some sense relative to the power of God? 
Ephesians 1.10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth, all things in him. 1 Timothy 2.4, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That's his desire. That's not, that, and to be honest with you, from the Greek, that is not something he forces. That's just his desire, to be honest. Revelation 20, 14. Then death and Hades, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Thrown in, death, thrown in. Why? Because Christ had the victory over it. There's no more of that. 1 Peter 4, 6. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. How about a threefer? Let me just give you a threefer. <laughs> Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him Jesus, the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Then, 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So, if every knee will confess that Jesus is Lord, as the first verse said, and then the second one says, no one can say Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Spirit, that means the Holy Spirit is in every person to confess that Jesus is Lord. And finally, number three, Revelation 5.13. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, and all that in them is saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing forever and glory and might forever and ever. Revelation 5 says, every creature in heaven on earth and under the earth and in the sea. Every single one. I'm not making it up. John 1.29, the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the cosmos. Takes it away. John, 1 John 2.2, 2, he is the propitiation for our sins. Ready? And not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole cosmos. Here's the rub, you guys. The Calvinists astutely understand that if Jesus paid for the sins of everybody, then everybody would be reconciled to God. That's why they believe in a limited atonement. Because it doesn't make sense logically for Jesus to have paid for the sins of everybody and that not to be effective. So when you read uh, 1 John 2, 2, for he is the propitiation of our sin and not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. How do you have a whole world whose Jesus and Jesus has paid for all of the sin, die and then have to pay for the sin again? That doesn't make any sense. And the Calvinists know it. Those guys are smart. So they say, well, then Jesus didn't pay for the sins of the whole world. That's just a figure of speech. All doesn't mean all, right? That's how they get around that. Because they, they don't want to believe in a God who is so good and so powerful and so victorious that his son could actually save the whole world. They don't believe in free will. 
They just are saying there's a God who says, I'm not going to do it. Unbelievable, the twists that are made to the scripture. 1 Corinthians 15, 28, And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Those two alls mean he's in everything, over everything. He's had the victory over death, over sin, over everything, over every difference and variance that we stand up at our pulpits and make a big deal over. Everything he has had the victory over and through. His son, only his son. 1 John 4, 14, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the Jews. No. To be the Savior of those who believe on Him. No. To be the Savior of those who live in Israel at the time. No. To be the Savior of the world. Yes. Of the world. Colossians 1, 20, And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether it be on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's how powerful that cross is. That when his blood was shed, the peace was made across the board for everybody. Finally, two more. Lamentations 3, 31, 33. But the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or aggrieve the children of men, not the children of Israel, the children of men. He won't cast off forever. And finally, Isaiah 55, 8 through 11. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my way, ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it therefore, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, and it shall not return empty but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. There is plenty of scriptural evidence that the atonement of Jesus Christ totally saved, redeemed every single person on earth who has ever lived here. Every human being saved by and through Christ Jesus. That's not universalism. That is great news is what it is. And every time we get up and we start parsing it and we start packaging up special meal plans for everybody, we forget the great bounty that happened a long time ago. I want to cover one passage of scripture. I, I, I wasn't going to do this. I'm not sure I should do it, but I think I'm going to do it to wrap it up. And then we have an off-air question, but I'm going to try to do this with some effectiveness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, there are two passages of Scripture that are really important. The first one is verse 14, where Paul says, and I'm not going to explain all of it, for the love of Christ constrains us because this is how we judge. Ready? That if one died for all, then we're all dead. Okay? 
that's not we are all dead, it's we're all dead. And there's a, there's a clause there that says that if one died for all, then. There's an if then. It could be read this way, which other translations give it. Since one died for all, all have died. Okay? And what it's saying is there, it's not talking about Jesus died for the sins of the world because we were all spiritually dead. That passage is saying that if one died, Christ, then everyone is dead. That's what it says. If then. If Christ died for, for all, which he did, then all are dead. What does that mean? That's playing into the idea that in Christ's death, buried in the grave, three days, the whole world died with him. He was the substitutionary sacrifice who paid for our sin and was put to death for it. In and through him, we all have died for our sin. So he's paid for sin completely, the whole world, in and through his death. That's the if then. If one has died for all, that's Jesus Christ, then all have died. We think of it, we preach it from it, from the other perspective, as if Christ hasn't come yet. We say, because of Adam, everyone is dead in sin. That's not the, what happens with the fulfillment of Christ. What Christ did in his death is he paid for our sin through his death as a substitute. And because of that, we all died. For, the punishment was paid for us in our sin. And so I'm suggesting to you that we become, all, every person is a tabula rasa at birth. That because of Christ and his death, we have all died too, the human race. And so we enter into this life without having sin against us. It's not marked against us anymore because of Christ, the second Adam. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So what he says there in verse 14 is that one, if one died for all, and I just proved to you in the passages I read that one did die for all, then every person on this earth enters this life free from the punishment of sin upon them. We've died to it vicariously. Christ died for us. And the, punishment, the wages of sin is death. He took upon the wages of sin for us. He died, was placed in the grave, and therefore we all are dead. That's what he's saying there. It's radical. So if we live in a world and in an age where all of us are dead, all of us dead, then we are living in an age where, where we're not going to die and go to heaven and be judged for our sin because we've all paid for the price of our sin through Christ. All of us. Because Jesus paid for all of us. The question then becomes, how, what does that mean? We'll read verse 15. And that he died for all, ready? That they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves. He makes a distinction there. In verse 14, he's saying all twice. He died for all. All are dead. He died for all. All are dead. And then he starts talking about a they. That they which live should not live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. 
He adds in that second verse, and rose again. So what I'm saying is, and what I'm suggesting here, is that Christ's death took everybody on earth to death for their sin. I think that's what it says. And check the best Greek translations because it supports it. All human beings from Christ on have been put to death uh, vicariously through him. We've all died. But then it says that they which live, so there's only some who live that actually rise back up with him. That all have had their sins paid for and they are tabula rasa, blank slates, but some rise up, he says, and they which live, they, not the all, they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them, listen to what he adds, and rose again. So in and through Christ, who is everything, the end point is this. He died for all, the whole world, everybody on the earth, their sin. And he reconciled the whole sinful world to God, who is all in all now. And there are some, the they, who rise with him too. And we go about doing the works that he wants us to do. Those are the Christians. Those are the people who live by faith. So let's just wipe out the whole world's population in one blink. We're all dead now. Those who were died with Christ enter into the realms of heaven, but they don't go to where God and Christ are. They are blank slates. They have no sin, but they have no righteousness. They have no goodness. Their knees haven't bowed. Their tongues haven't confessed. And those who live, as Paul puts it, it's a death, but that his resurrection is what we are also, what believers are living to. And I think it's really an important point to start considering. So we might put it this way. Instead of teaching, which we are prone to do, you're dead in sin. You're dead in sin. Uh, you, because of Adam, uh, you are dead in sin. I would suggest all are not dead in sin, but all are dead with him. All are not dead in sin, but all are dead with him. Okay? Not dead in sin, dead with him. The question is, will you now rise with him? Will you choose to believe on him and live in his resurrection and live in that perfect life that is waiting for you on high? There is the difference. Um, I have an off-air question. It says, I really want to know Sean's take on Luke 21, 24 about the times of the Gentiles and what that means. Please ask him. Thank you. Uh, from what I can understand uh, in the Old Testament, uh, the Jews knew that there would be a time when the good news that was to the uh, children of Israel would also go to the Gentiles. That was prophesied in the Old Testament. The time of the Gentiles, I believe, came uh, the moment that the gospel went to the whole world. When the Holy Spirit fell and the first Gentile to uh, be uh, reached, if I'm not mistaken, who was the first Gentile? Uh, it wasn't Cornelius even though we always think it was, but it's in that time frame. Peter went to Cornelius' house, but the time of the Gentiles started then. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, went out to the whole world. He says himself in scripture, the whole world has hear, heard the gospel. That word world doesn't mean cosmos. It means that whole area has heard it. So Paul took it out to that whole area 
And that was the time of the Gentiles, where the Gentiles too could participate in the good news, be adopted into the house of Israel, taken up with the bride when Christ returned in 70 AD with the other Jews who had converted. That's what I think the time of the Gentiles is. Futurists believe the time of the Gentiles started at a certain point in time, perhaps Cornelius, and we're still in it. And that the Holy Spirit is gleaning the Gentiles from off the face of the earth to join in with the house of Israel. And when the last Gentile, could happen today, it could happen seven years from now, but when the last Gentile believes, boom, he's coming back and the whole thing is over. So there's going to be one kid. Maybe he was born in East L.A. last week. He's going to live to the ripe old age of 27. And he's going to be a gang member. And suddenly he's going to find Jesus and boom. The whole thing's over. The time of the Gentiles is dead. I think the scripture clearly says the time of the Gentiles was from when Paul or Peter shared it. And it started going out to that area. Hope that helps. No phone calls. We will see you next week here on Heart of Jamada.